also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Toronto Life is, has become notorious, especially during the pandemic, for uh, just posting articles like, um, what's a good example? How this 21-year-old millennial managed to uh, save up a uh, down payment for uh, a tiny condo in Toronto by not ordering takeout. And, oh, also living at their parents' house. And, oh, also uh, getting a loan. Yeah, we we do that in Britain. Uh, that's that's a classic Britain po- article to write. There's endless like explainers like how this millennial got on the housing ladder, and it's like, uh, yeah, it turns out that they, you know their their dad owns a is, is owns a gold mine in uh, their dad owns an artesian gold mine somewhere in Ethiopia. So you know they've um, they actually yeah, it's it's really easy to get on the housing ladder when uh, your uncle controls all bauxite production in Ghana. You know, you can you can really just well, you actually make the ladder out of the aluminium that's derived from the bauxite, um, and then uh, you too can uh, you know be someone who lives in a uh, twenty square meter condo, uh, and you can have your you can have your friends over, and um, I don't know, like uh, do a bunch of cocaine while you talk about like the different kinds of Facebook pages that you're going to start as businesses. My entire flat is made in, uh, of cobalt. Yeah. <laughs> actually, it's. Uh, it's this uh, this table is made of rare earths, um, the rarest of earths. Uh, uh, we bring up mining. We bring up mining for uh, for a good reason, because we often say here on the Bottleman that uh, Canada is not but uh, three resort natural resource extraction companies stacked on top of one another in a trench coat, um, and. I think what we've done is we've decided to explore one of the uh, many uh, facets of this uh, brilliant cut idea uh, today. And this is going to be about how the Canadian government facilitates this, these, this kind of extraction around the world uh, via aid. Uh, well, not just, not just and mainly aid, but also other diplomatic pressures. But again, I think it's a story that is not often told. And I think a lot of Canadians shock horror have a relatively sort of soft edged picture of our place in the world that does not really reflect i think probably I, when a lot of canadians think what do people think of when they think of canadians they think of romeo dallaire they think of resolving the suez crisis or canadians like foreign policy they think of romeo dallaire they think of the suez crisis they think of uh, peacekeepers and such the like. They think of b- people liking uh, Justin Trudeau and comparing him favorably to Trump. You know, this is it is generally seen as benign. But I think most people in the world, when they think about Canada, probably think about something else entirely. <laughs> yes, I think they think about um, perhaps a mining company uh, suing their government for four point four billion dollars uh, because. Uh, no one in that country wants them to uh, poison a huge amount of uh, beautiful uh, countryside. And I think part of you've actually sort of been involved in some, uh, you might say, in country. You, you, or you sort of have been had a firsthand uh, account of some of this in country uh, yeah. activity as pertains to uh, was it Gabriel in Romania? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I got. Um, I got as close, I think, as I will ever get to the radioactive core of, uh, you know, what this issue looks like on the ground. Um, so, back in back in 1996, this this company, Gabriel Resources, um, partnered with a state-owned Romanian mining company called Regia Autonoma Cupuri Deva, um, and. Their plan was to extract gold from this historically uh, historically rich deposit in the Carpathian Mountains. So um, the site was called Rogia Montana. And this town has been around for almost 2,000 years. The Romans were pulling gold out of the earth, you know, uh, back in the day. So, so Gabriel uh, forms the Rogia Montana Gold Corporation by partner- partnering with a, uh, with, with a state mining industry. And then uh, over the next couple of years, they managed to leverage 
they managed to leverage their take from 60% of the profits to 80% of the profits through, um, I guess, a vast multi-party network of corruption. Um, they no, promised. Are you that suggesting <laughs> that a Canadian com- company... Because we're, I look on corruption indices, and Canada is very low down those. And I'd be very surprised to hear that uh, 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 not, it's, uh, not, it's SNC Lavalin and this one, there's two? Yeah, well, uh, Gabriel kind of takes uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but you can replace Vegas with the word Bucharest. So, um, so, so basically, they promise that they're going to invest $250 million uh, into this project. They're going to create, they make these huge sweeping promises about creating tens of thousands of jobs. I think the number is 25,000 jobs. Um, and as this project neared completion, the Social Liberal Party, which was also mired in corruption, uh, approved the draft law, which would regulate the conditions of participation. And then they passed it on to Parliament and the shit hit the fucking fan. So there were mass, already massive anti-corruption protests in Romania. And this issue of um, Gabriel Resources starting this mining operation catalyzed uh sort of catalyzed the protesters. The main issue around Gabriel Resources, besides the fact that they were going to be extracting a huge percentage of the profits out of the country and not putting anything back in, uh, was the method they were going to use to get the gold out of the ground, which is gold cyanidation. So that's large amounts of cyanide used to leach gold out of the earth. It's banned in several countries. Yeah, it's... it's- yeah, the, 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 the earth is captured and uh, decides to choose death over interrogation before it gives yes. up its gold. Yes. And, you know, one of the reasons this, this gold cyanidation point was, was so polarizing for people um, and activated these protests was because a lot of these people had a very recent living memory of uh, what is referred to as the worst environmental disaster in Europe since Chernobyl, which was the Biomare cyanide spill, which extinguished plant and animal life for hundreds of kilometers in every direction so of course so everyone death before interrogation yes so all through this process uh the canadian government was supporting gabriel resources uh right down to a diplomatic level so i'm I'm reading from a uh, narwhal article um on on gabriel and it says, a 2007 email featuring the subject, Russia Montana, good news, sent from a Canadian embassy staffer to Canada's senior trade commissioner in Romania, noted that, quote, an ardent, as an, uh, an ardent supporter of the Gabriel Resources Project was reelected as mayor, and, quote, a congratulations phone call might be appropriate. Um, in an email from 2008, a trade commissioner <laughs> with Foreign Affairs and International Trade Canada clearly stated... Our embassies in Bucharest, Brussels, and London have provided extensive support to Gabriel Resources, such as offering business development advice and facilitating meetings with key decision makers. <laughs> I'm not uh-huh. saying this is true, no, but I fine. am wondering, at those meetings, were there large briefcases passed across the table with maybe little bits of, you know, little ends of bills sticking out of them? Maybe they're tied together with bailing twine. <laughs> Just one. Yeah, it's um, it's it's it is it it does seem like the kind of place where a lot of um, or or, or maybe like little 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 um little little cards that just say actual get out of jail free card. This will work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I mean that wasn't all. Like uh, the documents uh showed that a former Canadian ambassador to Romania, Rafael Girard, later joined the board of Gabriel Resources and worked for a lobbyist uh, for the company and used connections inside the ministry to push for the pro- uh, project domestically in Romania. I mean, the weird Which thing is, is, right, a lot of people have this instinct, right? They have this instinctual feeling that there is, that there, the deck is very much stacked against them, right? And, uh, and, and that's why we have, and that's, that's the thing, right? Every single time you look into um some big some big thing like this right you look into it enough if they've been stupid enough not to cover those tracks the ev- that evidence does come out right that there this is 
all of these it, i mean look it, it seems silly to say right this is a socialist podcast listened to by socialists ho- hosted by socialists but where you know as well of course these institutions are you know uh it's just mere superstructural representations of the um to, uh, that exist to sort of facilitate in your mind and the behavior of humans and in, in, in just expectations that what will create that, that sort of um uh, mcm um uh, 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 process that that money capital money whether it's extraction exploitation whatever but to just see evidence of it come up over and over and over and over again it's like if you think that you know you're basically your the deal you're getting is raw because you know basically i don't know you didn't have the right place in the dad economy as you're right you are correct that is a correct thing that you think it's just that there there is a whole other complex of uh, of, of of other institutions that make sure that that doesn't matter that you realize that. And if and if you are domestically in these countries, like uh, say the head of like an environmental regulatory board in a place like Romania, you might feel frustrated in the same way that you are literally cut out of negotiations with this company that is going to do a. Which is is going to open what would have been the biggest open pit mine in Europe, you know. Mm-hmm. That, which is exactly what they did. They froze out um, any of the sort of uh, regulatory committees were uh, in Romania were not invited to any of these planning meetings. Um, it was completely yeah, back channeled. And that's the thing. It's back channeled. Every big important thing is back channeled. The 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 front doors for suckers. And, you know, can't, and for all of our, and again, I feel like it's weird. No American or no, only maybe conservative Americans or whatever, I think really believe the whole sort of U.S. national myth that it is roughly speaking a force for good in the world, right? Like a lot of like, even like liberal Americans sort of have a, a dis, or at least until recently would have like a distrust of American intelligence services, you know, believe, generally believe like. You're never going to get no one, even a liberal American is not going to say Chevron is that our act is that Chevron is a net good. Um, and they know or that like um, our activities in support of Chevron are basically good that they're happening. But your average Canadian does actually believe that your average liberal Canadian actually does believe all of that national myth making that we are essentially uh, better than this, that this is what the Americans do, that we're all about an ethical foreign policy or an, an ethical yeah. conduct abroad and that everyone loves us because of it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to that point, um, d- during these negotiations, during these back-channel negotiations, uh, from internal documents obtained by FOIAs, there were briefing notes prepared for then Prime Minister Stephen Harper in advance of a meeting with the Prime Minister of Romania. These notes included suggestions to, quote, address the issue of Rocia Montana and, quote, advise a, uh, a broader point should be made to the Romanian Prime Minister about the risk of creating unfavorable investment climate in Romania. Nice country you've got there. It would be a shame if something should happen to it. <laughs> Good lord. And the thing is this is what we're talking about here is you might say diplomatic pressure, right? But the uh, sort of I think one of the things I'd like to focus on is uh is aid and or overseas development aid. But before we do that, you were you actually involved in any of the act- protests against this mine? Uh yeah, I attended one protest um a, a, a broader protest about um, Romanian corruption in in Bucharest uh, a few years ago, which this this these protests around Rocio Montana sort of abs- uh, absorbed and accelerated um, those protests. But you know the the end of the story with Rocio Montana is uh, the government eventually flipped on them and said, "No, we don't want this." They even applied in 2020 for UNESCO protection of the town to try and prevent. Uh, Gabriel Resources from, um, you know, doing mining there, and Gabriel Resources responded by suing the country for four point four billion dollars. But back in 2012, before this became a bigger, sort of, more public issue in Romania, I was on tour there. I was there for about two weeks, and I'd wrapped up a show in Cluj, which is 
in the um, sort of Austro-Hungarian part of, of, of Romania, um, the, the West. And my friend Irina and I drove back from Cluj through the Carpathian Mountains, um, through Transylvania, on our way to Bucharest. And we were talking about Roșia Montana. And she said, you know, we, let's just go there. Let's go to the village. Because I've never been there. She's like, I'd like to see it. So we drove into Roșia Montana and were immediately followed by two cars. Uh, we parked in what appeared to be like a Potemkin village where there was a... Uh, sort of offices and then a mining museum and we we're like well let's check out what the mining museum uh has we got out of the car we were immediately followed by three or four guys who were like hey what are you doing here uh who are you and uh Irina spoke to them in romanian i didn't say anything they followed us to the museum uh the woman at the museum tried to tell us that it was closed uh which it was not <laughs> Um, then made us register uh, register in a guest book, and I had to show my ID. I took up my Canadian passport, and they flipped out and basically ran us out of town. So. <laughs> now, hang on a second. <laughs> I was pretty sure. I thought that everyone. I thought that's why people put Canadian flags in their backpacks because everyone loves Canadians. Yeah. Huh. Well, what do you uh, know about in that? In this case, not so much. I think the reason we got run out of town was that um, they just. You know, <laughs> they did not want anyone poking around at the uh, future site of this uh, open pit okay. mine. And I got to say that the, the museum itself, what I saw of it was hilarious. It was <laughs> it was a uh, Potemkin village of a museum with, uh, you know, with plaques and, and sort of uh, dioramas in English and Romanian just talking about how great gold mining is. Uh, yeah, well, and, and you know what? It's uh, it's great because without it, uh, we wouldn't get um, we wouldn't get watches of a truly insane caliber where you look at it and you think, uh, what time is it? Ah, uh, tourbillon. <laughs> it's, it's twenty exactly. minutes to Japan. Uh, but what's funny about exactly. Gabriel Resources as well is its connection to Canada is, but with all of the support Canada gives it, its connection to Canada is the barest whisper, right? It is absolutely. It's, uh, it is a British company. That is headquartered in the Isle of and in the Channel Islands, um, and uh, it's owned by an Australian, like a Romanian-born Australian. Mm -hmm. It's just listed and financed in Canada on the TSX. And then once you're, if you have a mining company, basically, uh, Canada will fight your corner uh, because we just love mining. Just, <laughs> just, be, just that's and that's just it. And I think like, it's. We'll get to the the overseas development aid bit now because I think that's the bit I want to focus on for the balance of the t of, of our time here, right? And 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 to like think about this in terms of our two national myths, right? The ones we sort of were discussed based a little broadly earlier, because that the sort of general national myth is that Canada is a trusted third country, generally speaking, with a reputation for essentially taking benign actions uh, in the international sphere, peacekeeping, de economic development, mediation. We are seen as we think we are seen um, as a uh, as 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 a, a a rational and usually benign, often benevolent actor. And there's also a prog yeah, like a yeah, go ahead. progressive force of good in the world. Yeah, and there's another national myth that's and that's sort of softly an, a myth that's in contrast to the U.S., which is cooing and blundering around and uh, unable to and, and constantly like <laughs> offing democratically elected leaders um and and, and being basically unreasonable and, and uncouth and there is the and that's sort of the progressive national myth so to speak which is that canada is not just benign but actually a is and must be a valuable counterweight to the united states and is and must be a kind of moral force for not just development but poverty reduction uh conflict alleviation and, and, and that the rest of the West or like maybe Canada and sort of some countries in Europe do this, for example, like and so on. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the, Sweden. Yeah. We, we see ourselves in this way. And uh, again, right. This is this is a, a bit of ideology that is it is a complacency enforcing machine. Right. And. And, and the reason I want to talk about this in the context of, of overseas development aid is that, well, a lot of. This is a, a way that this is how we see ourselves as accomplishing this in many ways. It's either through diplomacy, 
our Lester B. Pearson arbitrating the Suez crisis is what we always get taught in school, um, <laughs> or uh, through our our sort of aid agency, which again is not. It's like, oh yeah, well USA. Well yeah, that's just the CIA. You know, uh, CEDA or DFAT-D as it, as it is uh, after the Harper government um, uh, merged with the Foreign Affairs Office, uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade Office, is this um, much more you know, a uh, neutral, benign force. Again, I think that's not quite true. So I think what's uh, 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 defining what overseas development aid is pretty quickly, it's essentially a post-colonial phenomenon uh, where countries no longer have imperial bureaucracies putting money and manpower into um, getting their natural resources and labor ready for exploitation by the metropole. Someone has to square that circle because just because, you know, uh, Africa is... Um, sort of no longer directly owned by those European countries that are then staffing and maintaining and enforcing the property rights of the um, of the property owners. Uh, th- that bauxite still needs to get from Ghana um, into uh, uh, you know Britain or Canada or whatever to be manufactured into a folding chair that can be used in the wrestling ring. Right. I'll, I'll- but we're just gonna let the Ghanaians like mine their own bauxite and then. Sell it to like, come on, yeah. Man. Look, they don't have nearly the kind of infrastructure they need to mine bauxite without us for some reason. So we will need to engage in overseas development aid, and foreign aid and tax havens are a kind of twin phenomenon, um, sort of a, a like twins and, and mirrors in history, where tax havens essentially exist as a post-colonial or a an, a not post-colonial capital P, capital C, but post-colonial lowercase p, lowercase c, just after colonization um, phenomenon, because this is where, as wealth was coming back from the col- private wealth that was coming back from the colonies, um, would, it, it did, never wanted to land on shore because then it's, you know, you'll have to share it with the dirty proles from the metropolis and no one wants to do that. Yeah, it's a little, little too hot to land uh, yeah. in the metropole. You know? <laughs> so it's going to... Ooh, ah, ooh. <laughs> ouchie, ouchie. It's, uh, it needs to tan for a while, so we're going to leave it in the Cabins, the Channel Islands, and so on and so on. So, so all of that wealth sort of extracted during, during Empire, lots of it never gets back to the metropole. But all of those extractive activities that were happening during uh, Empire need to continue. Uh, overseas development aid can now do this. Things like, um, uh, and, and also, you know, sta- and that includes things like stabilization, right? You need a, you need these uh, populations to be uh, uh, not restive. They need to be largely taken care of so that they don't, you know, rip apart your mind. Uh, they need to be educated so that they can work for your mind. Uh, and in some cases, uh, they need to be, uh, uh, there need to be middle classes so that they can be customers for things that you make and so on and so on. Um, in some cases, they need to be armed and uh, trained in suppressing uh, labor uprisings. <laughs> Indeed. And so development aid, essentially, in, in this reading of it anyway, um, like, they're all, like, is development aid doing some good? Sure. Buying mosquito nets, things of that nature. Fine. But we're thinking about this from the perspective of capital, not just from the perspective of evaluating every individual aid program. The function it serves for capital is essentially the same one that imperial... Imperial um, um, payment bureaucracies served, um, yes. and Canadian, Cana- the Canadian approach to development aid is Canada. You know, unlike sort of um, unlike European, uh, it can't, let's say Canada was a contiguous empire uh, that never really ended up decolonizing. Uh, it's all still there. Um, it's just called Canada now. Um, whereas it's not. It's not as though we sort of stepped back from an empire that we then needed to maintain if anything this the post-war period was our chance to begin getting in on uh the imperial game so to speak uh and this was this came out during the colombo conference as well that part of this imperial game as it always was um was also a competition between powers um and so that for us our development aid always had a twin purpose that uh, at capital, the purpose for capital, as we discussed, and also an anti-communist one. So uh, Lester Pearson, who was external affairs minister in 1950, said at the Colombo conference that, quote, communist expansionism may now spill over into Southeast Asia as well as into the Middle East. If, South, if the Southeast and South Asia are not to be conquered by communism, we of the free democratic world must demonstrate that it is we and not the Russians who stand for e- national liberation and economic and social progress. 
So this essentially leads to the founding of the external aid office, or this was the external aid office is in service of this requirement, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the agency through which Canada would direct aid to developing countries. Uh, was, this is very similar to the roots of the OAS with like a different purpose. Ah, <laughs> uh, the OAS does come up. Um, so the, uh, the, and the budget for aid grows from 11 million in 1950 to like 279 million uh, by 67 when we start getting interested in the OAS. Um, uh, <laughs> I see. I see. So weird. So strange. Hmm, why? Why then? So uh, we, the reason we stopped counting in 67 is that the external aid office uh, was sort of remade into CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency, by Lester B. Pearson, no longer an external affairs minister, now a PM. Um, and like we say, and yes, like we say, like any other development agency at the time, it was in fact largely a political tool to prosecute the Cold War by other means, even if these were the carrots of the carrot and stick policy, trying to keep the rest of the world from, um, uh, let's say, becoming uh, communist. You know, you can't let those Ghanaians nationalize that bauxite mine. We want that bauxite. It's our bauxite. Um, That's right. It's I, and just just as an aside, like it's ironic that that. During this entire period, a lot of these recently decolonized or self-decolonized nations that had, had independence movements and and were forming, uh, you know, pseudo socialists sometimes, sometimes hard socialist uh, polities within them, uh, were not necessarily interested in allying with either the United States or the Soviet Union, like the two major players. A lot of them, you know, were. Um, Sort of, a, a lot of them were interested in the more third third positionist movements of of Yugoslavia. You know, they're just sort of just purely independent networks. And we obviously couldn't be having that. Um, you know, no, not at all. In fact, we also come up with, and this defines how sort of all, some aid gets not necessarily spent but advertised, which is we come up with. Um, a foreign policy for Canadians, uh, which is this essentially review that happens um, in the in the 1970s, and there is this idea that we are going to have our, what's called the third option um, of, of our our own third way. Yeah. <laughs> so we we call it the third option, um, and essentially the idea was, and we was, and this was mostly now during the uh, during the um, uh, premiership of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, right? This idea that we are going to be, we are not going to allow ourselves to be folded into the United States. We are not going to uh, resist the United States. We are going to be a valuable but distinct actor in foreign policy when it comes to, uh, and we will complement, but be not co-equal with the, or not um, coterminous with the United States. And mm -hmm. so what we get, right? Is we get this, especially when you look at somewhere like Latin America, you get a an intentional, you get a, an intentional positioning of ourselves as not following the U.S. line. So, you know, ever since like, and this goes back to like again, while the sort of blockade of Cuba predates this um this policy paper and predates this sort of decade of Canada trying to be like its own thing. In uh, in so, all every fucked up thing we do comes back to the root of us wanting to like be somehow <laughs> distinct from the United States, I, but but still get their total approval. Yeah. Like still still have the big brothers' uh, meaty paw reach down and tossle our hair. You know? <laughs> um. So effectively, right? Um. No. So with this is one of the reasons why you know even though this goes back to Diefenbaker, we never uh, joined the blockade of Cuba, right? Um, and so we we turned this entire thing into again a bit of a a bit of a selling point for ourselves, mostly domestically as well, saying to us like, look, we have a foreign policy in South America. It's different from the U.S. Look, we're accepting lots of like left wing refugees from Chile, for example, you know, people who fled mm. Pinochet's persecution. Um. And, you know, this is and also where we tend to prefer to handle things multilaterally through organizations like the OAS, uh, which we entered as an observer in 1972 before becoming a full member in 1990. 
So that's another thing. Our commitment to things like multilateralism is something that we say we try to distinguish ourselves from the U.S. on. However, things that are handled multilaterally by the OIS differs from um, U.S. foreign policy preferences precisely how. <laughs> yeah, precisely zero. <laughs> so it is, it is quite a bit of, um, you might say, uh, 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 marketing. And where we get back to development aid is that if you look at, um, at, at CETA again, right, and, and South America, four years before the establishment of CETA in 1964, uh, we, uh, um, uh, uh, Salvador Allende uh, contested an election that he lost to centrist Eduardo Fry, but uh, did way, 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 way better than planned. And so what happened was... Uh, Canada, uh, because we were concerned that Allende might be more popular in the next election, gave $8.6 million uh, to Eduardo Fry uh, to shore up his uh, centrist government, essentially. I, this has got me thinking, maybe I'm being a little too hard on Max Fawcett. Maybe Max Fawcett is just, you know, the sort of evolutionary endpoint of uh, decades of Canadian uh, uh, political beigeness. Yeah, he is. Uh, it's look when you turn up the faucet to maximum, you're going to have to sacrifice points in intelligence and wisdom and charisma, dexterity, strength, all of them really, except faucet. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I am. I'm. St I'm stacking my uh, faucet stats. <laughs> yeah, I, everything. Everything but faucet is a dump stat for me. Um. So by '78, uh, when CETA was formed. There were significant amounts of, of different kinds of aid going to Chile, if not necessarily through CETA, then certainly you might say as a foreign policy priority. So, uh, for example, uh, there was Canada sort of forgave a lot of debt uh, to Allende's Chile, uh, gave, uh, gave them a lot of different borrowing facilities. Um, they uh, facilitated um, loans by by Canadian chartered banks worth more than a hundred million, as well as um, a loan directly to the secret police, uh, and also you know nearly a billion uh, of direct investments by individual Canadian companies. But again, like the uh, and, and again, I, I'm sure there were sort of um, you might say. Uh, more direct interventions by CETA. In the case of, of um, Pinochet's Chile, I, I couldn't, I wasn't able to find sort of a direct CETA intervention. I'm sure there was one, but what's very clear is that there was, and I mean, look, there were there were cables from the ambassador, right, uh, the Canadian ambassador to Chile, that basically were like, yeah, we hate the leftist rabble, we love Pinochet. <laughs> um, so this idea, again, like, it's almost like there's echoes of um, true uh, of of uh, of the of the sun saying refugees welcome, right? Yes. Well, and uh, as a way to distinguish himself from the Americans, while essentially supporting all of the processes that are creating all the refugees, <laughs> like like grandfather like father like son. I must say like grandfather like son. Yeah, like father like son. Yeah, this is the same. It's the same motherfucker. He's the same guy, essentially. It's just we've updated it and made him more annoying, um, right? And I think what the the point of this, right, is that our our branding and what it is that we actually do have basically been different as long as we have been engaging in the sort of provision of development aid, and it's always been deeply, deeply political. Um, and so in the 1990s, though, this is where uh, like. CETA no longer has a, an anti-communist mission necessarily because where are the communists? There aren't any. Right. You know? We're at the end of history. They're decoupled from their whatever yeah. ideology was driving. China them. is comfortably dengist. Um, you know, that's we assume that there's no socialism Dang. there. Uh, what, what, what's what's uh, Yugoslavia? Yugoslavia uh, is is now. Um, multiple countries. Oh, they're, they're, they're just busy doing their own yeah. thing. You know, it's a, bit, um, it's a bit of a family feud over the, there. How did that the, happen? The Albanians, the Albanians are in their bunkers. Uh, there is nothing left uh, for, there's no anti-communist mission left uh, for us to do. So without, without us needing to essentially use it as um, advertising, uh, CETA is, uh, is now fully in the business as opposed to just you know, mainly in the business of uh, making the world safe for Canadian capital. And again, I don't want to suggest that it was a, a, benefic a beneficent organization that wasn't just engaging in this post-colonial um, 
post-colonial imperial project of making ready uh, destiny of target countries to be have their stuff exploited and shipped out of it. Uh, it's just that it no longer even has its advertising function, essentially. Yes. Um, yeah. So what in 1997, what CETA does is it uh, partners with a Colombian law firm representing um, you know a bunch of multinational uh, mining companies, you know Barrick and so on. Uh, the Canadian Energy Research Institute, uh, which is based in the University of Calgary, which is like a, like a mining uh, advocacy group, essentially, um, to provide Columbia advice on their mining code. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I love it. So this is a four-year process uh, that culminated in the passage in 2001 of a new set of mining regulations for Colombia that were basically written by three mining companies in a trench coat. Can I, can I ask if those uh, new regulations were favorable to uh, foreign investment and extraction? Uh, well, if by, if by that you mean um, uh, infrastructural improvement, uh, fair compensation for investment at an attractive rate, and um, uh, 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 upskilling... Uh, 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 let's say upskilling vulnerable populations at an earlier age than ever uh yes <laughs> child labor baby <laughs> um can't do it here <laughs> no i i, I don't know about i don't know about that last one that's just the last thing yeah. i could think of uh, but no so basically right this is this is a quote from uh, uh francisco ramirez who is the president of the colombian state mine workers union um, the new code flexibilized environmental regulations, diminished labor guarantees for workers, opened the property of Afro-Colombian and indigenous people to exploitation. Um, we had a... <clears throat> and that uh, uh, CETA says, right, their project, because this is all projects, right, that, that CETA will be like, we're going to go into this country and we're going to improve something about its infrastructure. That's what... And then they have to like say all the marketing stuff around it. So they, the, the, the CETA summary of the project is thus. Canadian energy and mining sector companies with an interest in Colombia will benefit from the development of a stable, consistent, and familiar operating environment in this resource-rich developing economy. We had a five-year, $11 million project in Colombia to help Colombia... Here's the, here's the kicker. Remember these words. Strengthen its institutional capacity in both the Ministry of Mines and Energy and the Ministry of Environment and the regulatory agencies these agencies worked with. Um, now this is this was a a quote uh, from a senior official at CETA who spoke by phone who 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 was um, speaking by phone uh, to the author of this article that I am quoting from uh, from IPS News, uh, right? So effectively, what we're saying is, but strengthen the institutional capacity. That's a very very broad term, you might say. And it's something that comes up again and again and again if you look at any kind of CETA engagement. The ones that are still going are not CETA anymore, but you know, um, Canada International uh, development engagement that are still going on and still working right now. Like There are uh, projects to strengthen institutional capacity going on everywhere where there are Canadians spending money to do international development. That's one of the biggest things you yeah, could possibly do. This language was definitely hinted at, um, you know, in the Rogio Montana uh, saga by by Gabriel and and you know any of the uh, Canadian government sort of facilitators buzzing around this project. You know, they they're hinting at the fact that uh, allowing Gabriel to do the Europe's largest open pit mine was actually a win for like um, Romanian institutions. You know. That, yeah, because you get to uh, learn from working with us. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and and you talk about royalties, right? So, prior to CETA, the CETA legislation, uh, royalties were um, a minimum of ten percent uh, for large uh, exports, and it was in the '94 Mining Code. Um, now, or a pri subsequently, from the after the legislation was passed, uh, the royalty tax has been reduced to 0.4 percent, regardless of how much is extracted. Okay. Yeah. So Canada basically <laughs> a killer deal. <laughs> a a deal a, a, a deal worth digging for. Uh, yeah. Essentially, what can what the Canadian government did was like, well, we're going to use our international development aid money to pay a bunch of lawyers to write the smallest number they can think of that the <laughs> that they can get away with 
uh, when they are. It's, it's essentially we have we have paid for a bunch of Canadian mining operations um, to enter into a um, large tube like you get at uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, where they fire a bunch of money up at you. And all what we had to do was we had to pay a bunch of consultants to write down how much money it should be. And, and that was our that's institutional strengthening right there. Because if you so ask we need to yeah. make the tube smaller. <laughs> uh, sir, are you at all concerned that uh, this tube this the tube seems to be fueled by uh, local children being thrown into this thresher? No, make the tube more tube. We can run the tube for. I think we can write a law that says we can run the tube for an extra three minutes. See if we see if we can get Peter Monk more money. Um, oh yeah. God! And, and the thing is, that's not really all, right? I mean, after after sort of that, that was sort of a, a Chrétien uh, joint, um, you know, yeah. the, a, a liberal joint. But that was the old liberals. Then, of course, came the conservatives, um, and Stephen Harper went one step further. Uh, because the thing you you can't forget is he's just a boring Jason Kenny. He was always the politics of spite. It's just no one noticed. Uh, and also, it's during his term that CETA is no longer CETA. It now becomes part of DFAT-D, uh, which is... DFAT-D. Yep. D, it now becomes part of that fat dick. Um, <laughs> so, where instead of just going in and kind of clearing the way for the mining companies, CETA, there was a pilot program where CETA would partner with the mining companies directly. Hmm. Uh, and it was designed to, quote, improve the competitive advantage of Canadian international extractive sector companies by enhancing their ability to manage social and environmental risks. Um, so it's just basically factor for mining companies. <laughs> yeah, we don't want a bunch of American mining. Everyone's all buying their gold from American mining companies because we can't support. We need yeah. to pay the Arkells $250,000 to uh, take out two seconds of billboard ad, uh, ad space in Times Square. And so what would happen is, right, that uh, a delivery organization like Plan International or whatever would get a bunch of money and then they would engage in a joint venture with someone like Barrett Gold, right? So here's an, here's an example uh, is that uh, London for Africa, L-U-N-D-I-N, a mining firm, uh, was a philanthropic arm of a mining uh, company called London, L-U-N-D-I-N. Um, and so they give, give, they give like $5 million to that philanthropic arm, which basically just does, you know... Uh, kind of like um, just uh, we'll, we'll give kids like a uh, little like little T-shirts that say uh, you know I heart open pit, um, like like little <laughs> signs that say you know um uh, that mining is number one, um or they give them little pickaxes to play with so that they can learn uh they can learn uh what kind of skills they'll need for their midlife at twenty two, uh yeah just cook just cooking my cooking my meal over a sterno can marked London Group mm -hmm. thank you a gift a gift from uh Bay Street. Uh, so the, these are intended to, quote, promote corporate social responsibility through partnership arrangements between the extractor sector, extractive sector companies and other stakeholders aimed at socioeconomic development and support to governance. Again, hold up. What the what, though? Because it promote corporate social responsibility through partnership arrangements between extractive sector companies and other stakeholders aimed at socioeconomic development and support to grievances. That's what like domestic fucking regulation is for. No, no. Well, because you see, they don't have any because we rewrote it all, and so they don't have it. Right. Um, right. Now and we so need to it's basically, it. yeah. We need. Well, we need to promote it, but the the vehicle. I'm afraid the vehicle for it has to be the mining company, um, because we tried making it not the mining company, and then the mining companies just rewrote it with our help. So we should just let the mining <laughs> companies do it directly. I think, um, and like like again like and. It's something like our widely we are sort of widely criticized, rightly so, for the uh, the response to Haiti, which basically just involved yeah. um, Canada handing a bunch of money to SNC Lavalin, being like, "Can you know, pay yourself a bonus, and with that, whatever's left, buy them some tents or something." You know, we heard you were doing great things in Libya. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, all I'm saying is you got to get these got to get these shelters to Haiti, but uh, you know. I make sure you give a little something something for the mayor of uh, Long Longueuil. Yeah, exactly. I'm bad. I'm awful at French pronunciation. I'll never get good at it. Longueuil. Actually, Riley, did you know that um, one Quebecois slang for the mullet hairstyle is 
coupe de longuet. Which I'm currently which means, sporting. Me too, which means haircut of longuet. We both have coupe de longuet. We do. I, I learned how to say uh, one of the uh, larger <laughs> towns in Canada's name today. Um, so this is from a uh, this is from an article uh, in the Globe and Mail called uh, "In West Africa, a Canadian company mining company pioneers quote the new humanitarianism." It's fucking sweet. That's a I love it. That's a good headline <laughs> right there. It's, um, it's a 20, 2012 article. Um, yeah, this is uh, yeah, just borderline uh, clashes in Gaza. Uh. <laughs> so uh, this is a description of the actual product. It's with uh, I'm Gold uh, in Bur- in their work in Burkina Faso. Uh, mainly, I think I'm Gold. They're primarily just like a like a school of an advocate. They're more of an NGO really than a mining company, I assume. Um, so the project that they undertook uh, aims to provide. This is from the article. Uh, job skills and training for 6,400 children between the ages of 13 and 18 over the next five years, uh, and neither of in, in Bur- regions of Burkina Faso, not in the immediate vicinity of the mine itself. So essentially, the Globe and Mail just like <laughs> running interference for I am cold. <laughs> well, you could okay. Look, listen, man. <laughs> what what did what do NGOs do? What do you think of NGOs do? I, you know, I think of NGOs as digging wells. They love to dig wells, right? And what is I am gold doing? They're digging a really big well, but instead yeah. of water, you get something better than water, which is gold. Yeah, I don't so they see keep the, the well, here. we take the gold. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um <laughs> so, right, like um much of their they say so they the, this the, the article goes on. Uh, I am Gold is the largest private employer, or was at the time, in Burkina Faso, and since 95% of its employees come from within the country, is also heavily involved in job training and educational programs because many like need technical skills or are illiterate or whatever. Um, but the, the, the CEO of I am Gold, uh, uh, Mr. Letwin, said that the motivation is purely altruistic. He has seen idle young people in the cities of Burkina Faso and he wants to help them. Yeah, these these people sitting around. Come on, they need to they need to step up and get to work. Then they maybe they can own a big international company. They can hey, maybe you can strip mine the town of Niagara on the lake. What about that? Yeah, you know. Yeah, King Le- King Leopold's people just going into Congo and looking around, and being like, mm-hmm. these people seem pretty idle. Yeah. Hey, well, why don't we give them something to do? Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's it's it basically says. It makes more sense for the company to build links to experienced aid agencies rather than trying to do the project alone. Uh, Letwin said, It's very hard to escape the cynicism that comes with programs like this. People try to look behind it for other motives. (laughs) They just can't believe that there's a sincere intention by the company to try to help. Again, using Canadian... Even even like... This seems like the, the fifth most important thing here, but also just using Canadian taxpayer money to basically manufacture you know, it's it's like the gangster that gives out a turkey at christmas you know just mm-hmm. manufacturing consent for like being a parasite on the community that you're in it's like the hell's angels in the naimo doing like a christmas toy drive yeah. and then being uh, allegedly responsible for most of the fentanyl issues in the, in the city yeah it's like um god so uh he says look um it, basically right he says he said he acknowledges that there could be some indirect effects for I am and benefits for I am gold saying if the youth don't have doors or windows to get out and improve then we're going to have problems at the mine and we're going to have problems as a, as a society. So it's like yeah a good education is the best strike breaker. <laughs> he doesn't actually say that I'm in, I'm interpolating. Um the and that just basically means if young people remain unemployed over the course of time, they're going to want more of a take to support them, which means increased taxes and royalties. <laughs> so yeah, we got to make sure that um, we got to make sure that everyone's earning enough money doing their, you know, I don't know, some kind of a some kind of a micro enterprise that they don't need to like ask the government to support them because then the government would have to tax us, right? Uh, this is like it's it, it. How is this different, really? From it, it is different in say maybe from you know like um just sending in uh you know british troops and pith helmets to shoot anyone who comes too close to the governor's mansion but like it has the same intended effect which is i want to i want to take all the stuff from the ground in this country and bring it over to my country so i can like 
I don't know, afford my own Epstein Island. Um, it's it's basically what's the least amount of uh, like quote unquote mm-hmm. altruism we can do so we don't have like a violent uprising, you know? <laughs> Again. Oh, man, and and this has also happened in Peru. So this is Peru and Barrett Gold. So this is from an article in Toronto Star in 2014, um, where World Vision and Barrett Gold made a partnership to develop small scale jobs to develop the economy. So it was just a, a just a million dollars, uh, which is relatively small potatoes in development terms. Uh, so half a mil from Barrick and half a mil from uh, the taxpayers of Canada. So you and me, uh, World Vision launched uh, business workshops as a way to, quote, wean the town off dependence on the mines. But again, I'm sure the town would much prefer to be dependent on the mines. If they owned the mine. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, their well, stuff. no, we have to teach. Well, we, we have it now. So we have to teach them to do other stuff. Because they can't be depending on this stuff because that's our stuff now. See, it's got our, it's got our name on it. Um, what happened between the... What it, well, it used to have the country, a different country's name on it. Now it has our company's name on it. It's different. It, it can lay claim to a dozen successful small businesses, the program. So uh, $1 million, <laughs> a dozen small businesses. <laughs> um, from cheese factories to alpaca wool cooperatives. God, I'm getting monocle vibes from this. Local restaurants to ice cream vendors and yeah, even a doll too. manufacturer, the project sure has spawned a slew of micro businesses. Thank you, Toronto Star. Um, to be fair, though, this article in Toronto Star is actually quite critical uh, of the uh, partnership itself. So, uh, all credit to that particular one. Um, but yeah, just like, oh yeah, well, you don't want this. You don't want this mine. Well, we have the mine. You don't want that, though. Uh, why do you not have the capacity to exploit the resources in your own country? Who can say? That's what that who the the Colombo Commission, something like this. I don't. know. I barely remember. Anyway, why don't you take some business lessons? Why, uh, why, why don't you? Why don't you try uh, artisanal craftsmanship? You people <laughs> love that shit. Um, and another one was tried in Ghana with Rio Tinto, but the uh, mine was closed before it could carry on. They still carried out the project anyway because it's good advertising for them. Um, but that was under Harper, right? That's a Harper thing. Surely we don't still do stuff like that. Oh, it no, it couldn't be. Things have changed. You know, we're not. Um, look, the Harper government is gone. Um, we are not building the Victims of nope. Communism Memorial. Um, we're not uh, part of the mm-hmm. Lima Group, which is a bizarre sort of uh, outgrowth of OAS. Um, yeah, it's just smooth sailing from here on out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nothing, nothing but net. Anyway, um, Time to take a look at some of these other notes I've made, but forgot. Oh, boy. Let me just take a big sip of my uh, Canada Dry Club. Yeah. Uh, Dan. And I'm holding it in my mouth. I'm going to have to disappoint you. It looks like we are still doing a lot of that stuff under Trudeau. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. I've sprayed club soda all over well, my computer. This is this is I bet what it's like to listen to Radio Lab. This is fantastic. Yeah, we got we, we got Roman. We, we're fucking Roman Mars over here. Call me Elon Musk because I'm Roman Mars. Thank you, thank you. Um, so this is uh, from an article in Canadian Dimension by Eve Engler. Um, so this is just a, a list of some projects. And then we I went on I went on Canada International and found a few more of my own. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, this is all after 2016, all of these programs. Uh, the, the government has launched $12.5 million for a program called Strengthening Education and Natural Resource Management in Ethiopia. Which again, they couldn't possibly manage their own natural resources. They need us to tell them how to do it. And even if they don't have the technical knowledge of how to do it, they don't have the technical knowledge of how to do it because, well, who can say? It's not as though, again, it was systematically yeah. sort of underdeveloped and treated as a cheap labor source. There's no problems like this in history. All of it is just solvable with programs, just program after program. And while we may not be partnering directly with mining companies anymore, because that was like, like we said earlier, it's obvious you can't win. Everyone knows how rigged this, that, that particular, um, well, the economy is. But sometimes you can't be too obvious about it. We're going back to being not quite as obvious about it. Uh, so that strengthening education in natural resource management in Ethiopia, uh, quote, was to improve the employability of people in natural resource fields like geology, mining, and engineering. It works for universities and technical institutes to improve the quality of programs, align them more closely with the needs of the private sector. So this is a direct 
train the workforces of the miners operation. And Ethiopia, uh, mm-hmm. by the way, is the largest single recipient of Canadian aid. And we are going to see part of why that is in a moment. Here is some more. Enhanced oversight of the extractive industries in Francophone Africa. And again, that's another capacity building, institutional strengthening one. But we know what that means. We strengthen the institutions and then point them in the direction that we want. Um, Enhancing resource management through institutional transformation in Mongolia. Same thing. Support for the Intergovernmental Forum on Mining Minerals, Metals, and Sustainable Development. Enhancing extractive sector benefit sharing. Another, supporting the Ministry of Mines to strengthen government and management in the mining sector. West African governance and economic sustainability in extractive areas. Uh, and so a little more depth on the, that other one, on, on another one here that I looked into further is um, the supporting the Ministry of Mines to strengthen governance and management of the mining sector. It's another Ethiopian one. And that is... Um, of $15.3 million, and here's what it says on Canada International. The project aims to increase sustainable national and regional economic growth by supporting Ethiopia's Ministry of Mines in strengthening the governance and management of the mining sector. The project seeks to enable the Ministry of Mines to effectively develop, supervise, and monitor regulations and policies for the sector that secure greater economic and social benefits for all Ethiopians and mitigate negative environmental impacts. So that's just, it's the same thing as in 1997. It, it's it's all the same. It's it's described in almost the same way. Um, project activities include number one, improving the efficiency, transparency, and accountability of the mining, uh, licensing, management, and geodata systems. But again, for for what? For whom? Why is Canada doing this? Two, yes. <laughs> strengthening the Ministry of Mines Human Resource Management to create opportunities for gender sensitive professional development and employment. Okay, so that's one way that it's different. Uh, is it's like we're three mining companies in a trench coat and like. You know, um, but it's all under the trench coat is a T-shirt that says this is what a feminist looks like, but it's still just three mining companies. It says just yeah. we feminists. It's uh, yeah, we're what well, the people we're sending into the mines to like you know again like like die are wearing this is what a feminist looks like T-shirts. Um, yeah, uh, also improving the Ministry of Mines' ability to promote domestic and foreign investments in its sector. So hey, we want to invest in it. Please uh, let us do it. Uh, make a more competitive environment. Uh, but what if a what if we had a woman who was you know um, charging 0.2 percent uh, royalty fees? Huh? How about that? I think that would improve things. Yeah, this is definitely a post Freeland um, development. Yeah. I feel like you know this addition this addition of uh, that type of mm-hmm. rhetoric, like it's like <laughs> which is which is like on the surface, okay, yeah, great, but it it. You know, the more you think about it, it becomes even well, more because what effective. you're doing is this is all just you know marketing and consent manufacturing, right? So it's like, well, we need to get like, I don't know, for the for the bits of like of Canada that are you know we we need to sort of get on board. A lot of them all went to university, and in university they learned that this this kind of thing is important, which like it is. But they're taking the rhetoric, they're taking the rhetoric of this, they're putting it on a surface level of what is essentially a we are going to rewrite the mining code of Ethiopia for our own benefit yeah we're gonna we're gonna come in we're gonna fuck with your government we're going to get the best deal we possibly can because you know at the end of the day we look down on you uh and uh if you and the people in your country don't like it we'll sue you for 4.4 billion dollars and, and there is this in the case of and Romania. I think there, there is this idea sometimes right that because you know, like uh, the language of gender equality is sort of co-optable and will end up on stuff like this, that like gender equality is inherently like therefore a liberal mock- a mockable thing. It's like, no, it's a concept that you have to defend from the mining companies because that right now it's under attack by the mining yes. companies to use cynically in order to rewrite the legislation in Ethiopia. Um, and by the way, yeah. uh, this is a headline so, from a yeah. trade publication in 2018. Following Ottawa's development aid push, Canadian miners eye opportunities in Tigray, Ethiopia. A state-funded support program for Ethiopia's Ministry of Mines and Geological Survey has paved the way for Canadian junior miners to request permits from capital Addis Ababa. Now, what's going on in Tigray at the moment? And does that affect our disbursement of aid designed to facilitate Canadian mining companies there? Um, No, it does not. (laughs) We are... (laughs) We are absolutely going to continue, you know, um, we are con- going to continue just, yeah, 
putting like putting our uh, supporting our uh, different like junior miners to go into uh, Tigray where there are um, uh, massacres being carried out. Uh, Wait a minute, Riley. I thought we were uh, I thought we were a morally just country that um, punishes uh, punishes uh, evil countries with sanctions and uh, does not do business with them. I thought that we big. Why aren't we Magnitsky acting these guys? You know, I, I, I think maybe we just don't. Oh, hold on. We have given a response, which is we've called on all parties to show restraint. Um, but what we haven't done. Oh, nice. Have, uh, Canada, Canada is concerned. Yes, exactly. Uh, we are very concerned, um, but uh, we have not. Uh, uh, we are still going to be doing what's most important there, which is rewriting the laws that let us extract all of the mineral wealth in the region. Um, that's going to be the main thing we're doing. And that is going to, because if I understand the security development nexus, and I think that I do, if we mine enough, then democracy will kick in. That kind of thing will stop. Well, that's a lot of people don't know this, but, um, geologically speaking, you've got several layers of the earth. The top layer, depending on where you are, might be rare earth, uh, minerals that are needed to, uh, build electronics. Underneath that, you've got your precious metals, your gold, your platinum, uh, titanium, what have you. Mm-hmm. And underneath that is a rich pocket of democracy, uh, <laughs> which needs to be extracted from the earth and smelted. I, I suppose that you is really... Dig deep for the democracy. <laughs> um, I, I suppose that really is going to be uh, what's going to have to happen. Um, we're going to have to make sure... Look, we, if anything, we have to step up the mining. Um, we also have to make you gotta sure... you got to dig deeper, harder, faster. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have to make sure we are uh, supporting supporting the government, and I don't know, maybe um, you know, uh, maybe uh, uh, maybe the, our mining companies can um, you know help uh, help the Ethiopian government um, uh, uh, ethnically profile uh, Ethiopians of Tigrayan origin. You know, you know uh, that 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 maybe we can do that as part of security and development. Uh, but goodness knows we can't stop it. Um, we can't stop you know just ha- again handing out like. What do you want? You want do you want wrestling without the chairs? We need the metal to make those chairs. Um, and even then, right? We're still just like handing tons of what one um, thing that just completed because right, it's it, imperialism evolves. You know, it's not always about mining. Um, here's a project profile sort of I I found just by looking through the um inter- Canada International website. Eight and a half million bucks through a sustain a, a an impact investing firm called Renew Internet, or an impact investor. I don't know if it's a it, these impact investing is a complicated business. Um, lots of different entities dispersing funds to one another. Um, but their partner was through a group called Renew International Canada Limited, um, which again was dispersed in 2016, uh, ended earlier this year. And the project quote aims to strengthen the financial, social, and environmental performance of small and medium enterprises. That they are better able to attract and manage finance, including private equity financing, and scale up their companies. So, um, it's, mm. oh, it goes all it goes all the way back to like um, Lenin's imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism with the under underconsumption thesis <laughs> and the sort of idea that we attractive investments abroad must be sought when yield is scarce at home. Um, so it's like, look, we need to create targets for private equity firms. <laughs> Please let the government. The government should pay for this. <laughs> it was where it's not mining; it's fucking something else. They're going to build de- international and domestic investor awareness of Ethiopian investment opportunities. Um, awesome! Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get the same guys that uh, made Deadspin suck come and take over. You know, the well, Ethiopian Deadspin, <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is great, and I'm so happy that Canada has this. Um, moral foreign and development policy through which it can uh, promote these kinds of really essential activities. You know, really, really sort of really amping up the freedom, guys. This is Romeo Dallaire shit. This is, you know, if Romeo Dallaire had mining companies that he had to help, I'm sure he would have. Look, we've got these guys at home. They're running these projects. We need to create the same type of guys abroad. Some of these countries have a guy <laughs> deficit, a specific type of guy de- deficit. We need business. We need business doofuses. We, where is the Ethiopian Cortland Cronk? He does not yet exist, and so it would be necessary to create him. Oh, my. 
so look, I, I think this is going to become a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a series looking at um, Canada's uh, attempts to sort of myth make and burnish its own reputation abroad. Um, I think I'd like to talk about uh, go in depth on Haiti next. Uh, I think that would be that would be a worthwhile yeah. activity. So you know, well, more of this to come. Um, but in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for listening to the Bottleman, uh, a podcast that you're listen- that you have been listening to for the last hour and several minutes. Um, and I think I need to go because I'm super hungry now. Like I said, I would be. You've got the. I have a of the tummy, tummy empty, ache, buddy. I'm, my tummy's too empty, and I'm, yeah, I'm gotta- fussy about it, but it's not achy. Yeah. You got you to gotta put some good stuff in there. Uh-huh. Don't, not too much because you don't want to cross the line and go back all no, the way back no. around. What, what, what I need is I need, I need to, I, I've only had like three sodas today. I need to get more of my like rec, doctors recommended intake of soda. Um, I need to have a big bag of chips for dinner and it's going to be delicious. That's going to be mm-hmm. me. You got to stay hydrated, <laughs> hydrated and nourished. So I'm, I'm, I'm having, having sort of, you know, peered into the dark underbelly of, um, of of the mining companies that I uh, well once uh, at one point called home, I now must peer into my own belly and fill it with a big bag of chips and a two liter of soda. That's this. That's part of this complete breakfast, uh, lunch, and dinner. It's the whole meal. It's all great. Anyway, you don't forget we have a Patreon. Seven Canadian dollars a month. You can subscribe to it and hear more episodes. Uh, this week, our bonus episode is going to be all about Monocle Magazine. Uh, a, a large, glossy, uh, a large, glossy, uh, you might say also, um, apologist for uh, uh, certain uh, countries <laughs> around the world that uh, you could, uh, but that Dan and I still like because we're both fancy boys at heart. If you want to feel like you're uh, spending time in the most elite airport lounge and frictionlessly moving between uh, uh different types of coffee shops in different world capitals. Uh, you're going to want to tune in to this uh, Patreon-only So Usually, episode. it costs $16 for an issue of Monocle, but we can give you that feeling for 7 bucks a month, which, that's a great deal. It's an unbeatable deal. The numbers work out. But uh, I... A truly Hinoki-scented episode. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's an episode that knows it's Hinoki from its sandalwood. But uh, I'm super hungry, so I'm going to go and eat. Bye, everybody. Go eat, buddy. Bye.